Hello, and welcome to the CFA Society San Francisco podcast, where we interview and discuss current topics with leading members of the Bay Area investment community. This week, Tanya Subatang, Membership Manager with CFA Society San Francisco, sits down with Reggie Sanders, Managing Director of Investments at W.K. Kellogg Foundation and Board of Director with Rock the Street, Wall Street. Listen in as they discuss the impact of diversity, equity, and inclusion and its foundational role in finding success. Hello, Reggie. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Doing well, Tanya. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, I, I want to tell our listeners a quick story before we get started because I think it's just so important. But okay. I had actually met you earlier this year when mm-hmm. CFA Society San Francisco had hosted a webinar with the nonprofit organization Rock the Street Wall Street. And on that panel, we had Maura Cunningham, the founder and CEO of Rock the Street Wall Street, and of course, you. Mm-hmm. And during that event, you had shared a little bit of your journey and upbringing, which was so inspiring that from that point, I knew I had to have you on our podcast. So so it's safe to say I am beyond thrilled to have you on our podcast and get to talk to you a little bit more and dig a little bit deeper regarding your inspiring journey. Mm -hmm. And even more momentous is that today is actually our podcast's one year anniversary. So what a day, (laughs) what a podcast, right? (laughs) Yes. So I like to start our conversation from Mm -hmm. your very beginning. And when I say very beginning, I mean your childhood. Um, When we last spoke, you'd mentioned that growing up, you had an affinity for math. And that struck me very interesting because was the factor that you were so good at math kind of helped make your decision in pursuing a career in finance and investment? Well, it was, Tanya. Uh, I enjoyed math and made good grades in my math classes in school. But my affinity for math came from my mother. She was a middle school algebra teacher for 35 years and stressed the importance of education. And while I was never in one of her classes, I saw firsthand the tangible benefits of having a strong background, what having a strong background in math could bring. Mm -hmm. She would do the taxes of others in a neighborhood who did not know how to do their own taxes. She used to spend countless hours tutoring the other kids in the neighborhood who may have been having some challenges in math. And by doing this, she helped them improve their grades, helped them graduate, go off to college and be gainfully employed after college. So I saw that entire cycle and the powerful impact that having a strong background in math could have in helping others. This led me to, this led me down the business path and to ultimately major in accounting in college. I thought at the time that since uh, accounting is a language of business, then it would be a practical way for me to leverage my enjoyment of math. But once I got to college, I became more interested in the stock market. At Florida A&M's business school, uh, you had to participate in a student-run company in order to graduate. And I participated in the student-run investments company. And this is what led to my interest in the investment industry. Wow, that's an amazing story to start, especially being your mom, such an early inspiration, I guess you could say, yes. and kind of getting mm-hmm. to that. And math is not an easy subject. So <laughs> to, to have that, I think it just gives you a little bit of a leg up already. Um, yes. I'd love to hear a little bit more on you know your experience with Florida AM. And I know you said you got your bachelor's there, but there was other experience that really did help prepare you to mm-hmm. your career. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, it, Florida a was an absolute game-changing experience. Uh, it's a historically Black university in Tallahassee, Florida, that at the time had about 10,000 students. The undergraduate business school was started in 1974 by Dr. Sybil C. Mobley, who had a vision to leverage her Wharton degree to create the top undergraduate business school in the country. However, everything about the business school and the curriculum 
was customized to take into account that most of the African-American students came from neighborhoods like myself, mm-hmm. where business was not discussed at the dinner table. So she developed an innovative professional development curriculum to address this. By the time I got there in the ni- early 1990s, this professional development curriculum was a well-oiled machine. When I got my acceptance package, when I was admitted to Florida a and there was this one pamphlet in particular that had a list of the appropriate types of business suits we needed to get before our first day oh, of class. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. I mean, we had to, we were going to have classes and meetings uh, with C-suite corporate executives where we had to wear suits. Uh, we also had to take public speaking classes, business writing classes. We had to take classes on what to do at a reception or business dinner. We had to read the Wall Street Journal or the FT every day and other business wow. magazines like The Economist. We had to interview Fortune 500 CEOs and get graded not only on the quality of the question, but also on the quality of our research before to prep before the meeting. This professional development curriculum gave students like us, students like myself, the boost that we needed. Yeah, I liken it to one of the 100 meter dash races of Olympic great Carl Lewis. Carl Lewis was the one of the most Olympic gold medals in track and field history when he retired across a number of events. But his signature event was a 100 meter dash. He was mm-hmm. so tall that he was notorious for getting off to slow starts. And in that first 30 meters, he always looked like he was in trouble, but then he would get going. And by the time you were halfway at 50 meters, he would be caught up with the other sprinters. And then during those last 50 meters, you would just start to see that gap widen as Carl is extending his lead between himself and the other sprinters on his way to victory. Dean Mobley at Florida a and provided that Carl Lewis boost to my career and to those careers of other students as well. That's quite amazing. And it's an amazing experience. And you were 18. Yes. So you were buying a suit when most 18 year olds were probably not sure what a suit is exactly. at that point. So that's but it was not, not only just a suit, it had to be the right suit, the I, right I, colors, exactly. the right ties, the right color shirts, the right color socks. It was, it, it was, no stone was left unturned. At any point when you saw that family, were you like, I think I'm going to be in over my head or were you, that gave you even more of a bigger motivation? It gave me a bigger motivation because I knew I was doing something different and I was doing something special and I wanted to be a part of that something special. Oh, that's amazing. So obviously you share a little bit of your background where you lived in um, a neighborhood where business was not really talked mm-hmm. about during dinner or, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, not people knowing how to do their taxes. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give somebody who may have had the similar upbringing as you, who mm-hmm. unfortunately may not have the opportunity to go to a school that offers such an amazing <laughs> opportunity and training, right? As Florida at A&M, like what could could they do in order to, to your point, after they graduate, kind of close that gap? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Tanya, there are four pieces of advice that I would have. First, do not let your mindset be limited Mm -hmm. by your current surroundings. What if you dreamed, explored, and discovered what was possible outside of your current environment? Mm -hmm. We as humans are all living in this big book of life with pages and chapters being added to it every day. The problem is that many people have only read their chapter in the book of life. 
Imagine what would be possible if we did not just read our own chapter in the book of life. Imagine what would be possible if we read other people's chapters in the book of life. When you do this, you will learn of opportunities outside of your current surroundings and your environment that can propel you to higher levels that otherwise would not have been possible. There's this popular saying that talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. When you have read the other chapters in the book of life to find these opportunities and max, you you can find these opportunities when you read these other chapters in, in the book of life to maximize your potential. The second thing that I would do is remember that you're running your own race. You want to learn the best from others' experiences, but you must tailor it to your own specific context. Each person was put on this earth for a specific purpose, and life is about finding that specific purpose. The example I like to use is the decathlon, which consists of 10 track and field events. The gold medal winner in the decathlon in the Olympics is often labeled as the world's greatest athlete. However, no one gets a chance to choose those 10 events. No matter how great that decathlete is, there's always some of event where if given a choice, they would swap out this event for another event in which they would do better. But life is like a decathlon, except you get a chance to choose those 10 events. Use those opportunities wisely to select those 10 events that allow you to run your best race. The third thing I would do is act immediately when you see a transformative opportunity for yourself. We all need some help in some form to realize our potential. Act immediately when you see an opportunity or meet a person who can help you realize your potential. Don't wait for the confirmation of others. If you've read other chapters in the book of life and have incorporated these learnings into helping you run your own race, then you will see those transformative opportunities for yourself in a way that others do not. And the last thing I would say is just to pass it on. Once you have benefited from these opportunities, be generous in passing on even greater opportunities to the next generation. That is how systemic barriers are broken and narratives ultimately change. Using my own family example, my mother grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, in the heart of the civil rights movement. She went to Dr. King's church and actually witnessed Rosa Parks get arrested. In the late 1950s, the University of Alabama was not an option for her. Only Alabama State, the historically black university close by. However, her investment in me allowed me just one generation later to graduate from Harvard Business School, something that would have been unimaginable to my mother when she was at a similar age. Now, one generation later, my wife and I are providing opportunities for our kids that we didn't have growing up, like attending a Spanish immersion school and acquiring another language. Mm -hmm. They play competitive chess, and it is not so they can be the next Bobby Fischer. It is because this experience created creates another mental model that can be one of those 10 self-selected decathlon events that enables them to run their best race in a totally unrelated area later in life. Once they become parents, we will want them to pass it on to our grandkids and expose them to new diverse experience. You know, even though someone listening to, you know, to, to this podcast right now or interview right now will not have the exact same opportunity as I did, they will be able to do these four things. Dream, explore, and discover what's out there beyond your own environment. They will be able to incorporate these outside learning so that you can run your own race. And once you know what race you want to run, you can seize on those opportunities to help you run your best race. And last, when the time comes, just pass it on to the next generation. That was one powerful advice. It's so amazing to hear that. And and most importantly, the last part. And I think Mm -hmm. many of our listeners Listeners will probably be able to relate. You know, I myself, mm-hmm. I am a child of immigrant parents yep. who 
always kind of instilled in us to do better than what they did. But you put yep. it in such a beautiful format of saying, because you're helping open up and breaking those mm-hmm. barriers because of mm-hmm. those opportunities you're given. So what a beautiful advice to give. Thank you. Well, kind of saying on that same line, you know, yep. you were talking about experiences and life and to dream and discover. And the most one of those most important to mm-hmm. discover. <clears throat> when you look back in your life so far, because you're still mm-hmm. a very young man. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have one distinct experience that just simply had a remarkable impact on your life and, you know, had somehow maybe changed or confirmed your view of the world and or how you make decisions? Was there anything you can kind of recollect that was so influential to your life mm-hmm. at this point? Well, there are two things. One was more personal. One is more professional. Mm-hmm. From the personal side, you know, I mentioned that you know, my... I, already talked about uh, my uh, background coming from Memphis and, and Florida A&M. And so that that you that combination of that unique background helped me to develop the habits that continue to give me an edge in my career. Mm-hmm. African-Americans are noticeably underrepresented in the investment industry. So living in an all black neighborhood, going to an all black high school in a mostly black city in Memphis meant that I just was not exposed to the investment industry that I wasn't that exposed. It just was wasn't there. I wasn't that yeah. exposed to investment industry when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. However, I did not realize that all of those benefits and that boost from that professional development curriculum at Florida A&M gave me such an advantage until actually after I graduated and started using these professional development learnings. Some of what we learn as students gave us true tangible advantage. Some were table stakes. However, even though some of the learnings uh, that were table stakes compensated for our upbringing, the habits that we formed to get to the table provided intangible advantages that last a lifetime. For example, the habits I formed when I was graded on the quality of research I did before a meeting or on the quality of the questions I asked a CEO as an undergrad are still habits I use today in investment manager meetings decades later. There's this popular saying that alludes to the to the advantage a person has by being born on third base. Hmm. In baseball, there are 25 more ways to score from third base than it is from second base. Mm-hmm. But it is because, you know, it's, you know, the third base is the last base before returning back to home plate. So it's much easier to score than from second base or first base. Mm -hmm. Because Dean Mobley at Florida A&M knew that we were not born on third base, Mm -hmm. she taught us how to get to third base. And in that process, she gave us more ways to win in our career because not only did we know how to score from third, she taught us how to score from second base. She taught us how to score from first base. And yes, she taught us how to hit a home run in business and score from home as well. So I'll say that combination of growing up in Memphis and my education at Florida A&M collectively provided that transformational experience that gave me more ways to win in investing today. Now, if you look back at a distinct experience in my career, I would say my transition from Kodak to the Kellogg Foundation was definitely a distinct experience that had a huge impact on my life and changed the way I invest. This transition helped me change my only experience into an investment edge. And I'm defining only experience as being a minority that is different 
from the majority of a group in some way. Often in the workplace, this is seen from a race or gender perspective, but it can also show up in many other areas. Any person who has had a set of experiences that lead to a different belief system relative to the majority of a group can potentially be an only. The only experience is often an unfair burden for people, but this unfair burden can be turned into an unfair advantage in business of him and investing. And this is what I learned through this experience. For me, this experience of being an only when I made this transition was from an investment thought perspective. Prior to the Kellogg Foundation, I was at Kodak's pension plan. And at Kodak, we ran both the risk parity and portable alpha approach made by Bridgewater Associates, the largest hedge fund in the world, and the endowment model approach made famous by Yale. It was the ultimate in diverse thinking with two totally different, but each very successful approaches to investing all in one portfolio. It was like getting a PhD, a real world PhD in portfolio construction. When I joined the Kellogg Foundation, the strategy was just an endowment model approach. So I had to figure out how do I contribute my different, diverse investment experiences in a way that fit with the strategy. This is nothing against the Kellogg Foundation. This is just a process that everyone with an only experience has to go through to turn their only experience from an unfair burden to an unfair advantage. When you are the only in the group, you have to meet the majority where they are and they don't have to reciprocate. Why? Because it's comfortable to be in the majority. And it is also hard work to meet people where they are when they think differently than you. Is this unfair that the majority doesn't have to reciprocate? Yes, but no, I've found two significant benefits from meeting people where they are, even when they do not reciprocate. One is that you can learn something that updates and feels a blind spot in your thinking. So you're constantly iterating and you're getting better. Two, you learn areas of commonality beneath the surface and thereby you form that connection that acts as a bridge between that only experience and the consensus experience. It is not too dissimilar from the process of becoming a UN interpreter. It's one thing to be fluent in two different languages, but it is there's an entirely different process to be able to move seamlessly between two different languages at the speed and the nuance of a UN interpreter, similar to how one has to build a bridge to move seamlessly between two languages at the level and skill of a UN interpreter. The process is similar to building a bridge to connect one's only experience to the consensus experience of the majority. I learned that it takes more than just understanding both sides. You must build that bridge to connect, connect both of these sides to get a durable competitive advantage. That's hard work, but it's rewarding work. And it allowed me to go beneath the surface to identify those first principle commonalities between the Bridgewater approach and the endowment model approach to portfolio construction and build that bridge to allow for those commonalities to be better incorporated into the strategy. Now, you keep saying the word bridge, and I'm just curious, you know, how did you, was it through life experience or your upbringing, mm-hmm. kind of knew it was the key, was you said the word bridge. And what mm-hmm. does that entail? Yeah. Well, that's where a, a stroke of good fortune came in my life and that I was at the <laughs> Kellogg Foundation. Mm. Given the Kellogg Foundation's racial equity work, uh, I mm. received a blueprint on how to build that bridge. Mm. And one example that vividly comes to mind was the unconscious bias training that all new employees had to go through when I first joined. 
join the foundation. Mm, During that training, we had to do a privilege walk where everyone in the session would line up next to each other across the room. And with each question asked, if the answer was yes, you step forward. If the answer was no, you step backward. And the purpose of the exercise was to help people better identify how they might have had privilege. Wow. At the end of the exercise, those who were at the front of the room tended to be male, white, and born in the U.S. Mm-hmm. However, at the individual question level, it was a different story. Mm-hmm. When you're going through that exercise, at each question, everyone is looking to their left mm-hmm. and then looking to their right to who step see to who right. see who's stepping forward and stepping back with you. It's unavoidable. I mean, we're all humans and and it is right. hard, it's hard to control that urge to, to see, you know, who's with you and who's not with you. Right, right. <laughs> And and when you did that, look, you know, to your left, look to your right, you saw something different. You mm-hmm. saw the diversity. It was the it was much more diverse in terms yeah. of who stepped forward and who stepped backward with you at the same at, at, on the same question. First, it was a lot higher. Mm-hmm. And so my takeaway from that exercise was that two people could look totally different mm-hmm. on the surface, but have a number of different com- have a number of commonalities beneath the surface. However, if you don't go beyond the surface level, meet people where they are, ask those questions, you're going to miss those opportunities to build that bridge to find those commonalities. Without that bridge, you not only miss the commonalities, but you also miss the opportunity to find out why a person is the way that he or she is. And with that, you miss that chance to find someone's only experience. Successful investing is all about investing in other people's outlier only experiences. Knowing this, this is when the light bulb turned on and I realized that I can incorporate the privilege walk exercise into my investment work. Instead of asking questions on privilege to people who look different on the surface, I am asking questions on one's only experience regarding strategies that look, investment strategies that look different on the surface. And while I do ask the standard due diligence questions when looking at an investment opportunity, I have this separate reservoir of only experience questions that I ask all managers that are universally, just universally applicable regardless of asset class. However, under, like in the privilege walk, after this exercise, those with the only experiences would be in the front of the room and not the back. Mm-hmm. It took me a long time and a lot of you know, hard work to develop this only experience walk exercise with the managers to the point where it's now second nature for me. It's seamless. It's like when I'm doing it now, it's I'm, I'm like that UN interpreter because I can start going through different languages, I can go through different asset classes across managers and really highlight, okay, who really, who's really the only, who should I, who should I prioritize in terms of, uh, of investing in? Wow. That's, that is an eye-opening exercise. I, I think that is, wow. I would be surprised if a lot of people did not go in there with their like eyes wide and be like, this yes. is all comfortable. Yes, <laughs> you know, you're kind of looking yourself in the mirror in a sense. Exactly. That's quite a powerful exercise. Wow. Now I want to talk a little bit about your current position and what you do. Yes. So you're the managing director for, of mm-hmm. investment at WK Kellogg Foundation. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about what you do and share a little bit on what W. Kellogg Foundation does. Yes. Yes. I'd say the, the, for, for me, I'm, uh, ma- like you said, managing director of investments. I uh, started off as a generalist uh, mm-hmm. when I came here 12 years ago. 
Um, but now in recent years, I am leading our hedge fund effort mm-hmm. and also lead our diverse manager strategy and also sit on our impact investing committee. And uh, the Kellogg Foundation has about eight billion in assets, uh, about four and a half billion in a diversified portfolio that the investment team manages. And the rest is in Kellogg stock. And so the Kellogg Foundation in general, the mission is really you know, children are really at the heart of what we do. We know that children thrive in and live in families and family live in communities. So if we want children to thrive, we know that their families need to be able to support themselves and, and, and their communities need to be equitable places of opportunity. Embedded in that, when you look at, you know, equitable places of opportunity, it doesn't take long for you to get to race because a lot of disproportionately people of color live in, you know, areas where there's not a lot of equity and opportunity. And so embedded within all we do is our commitment for racial equity to developing leaders and engaging in communities to help solve their own problems. And this is part of our DNA for the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. We invest our investment capital to improve the lives of of children and and their families. And so for the investment team, we, we try to live this these values in addition to investing uh, we in, one way we do is investing in diverse managers and and we have a lot of support for diverse managers uh, we diverse managers can go onto our website they can submit their materials and be able to have us take a look at their strategies because we know that uh, more diverse managers need venues in order to get visibility uh, for institutional investors we also take a look at it from a structural perspective as well. And one of the most impactful initiatives is the Expanding Equity Initiative. This is a transformational program that helps companies uh, advance racial equity in their organizations. Over 60 companies and over, you know, consistent of over a million employees have completed this program. And the reason why this program is so important is because the failure to address uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion has become a disruption issue and a competitive, uh, just a competitiveness risk issue for businesses. The example that I, I like to use sports as an example uh, because uh, one, sports is a microcosm of life, just like business and investing. <laughs> and and with regards to uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, even though you know things are still there's still improvement that needs to be done in the major professional sports. There's still decades ahead of where we are on the investment industry side, and so you can look at history mm-hmm. and see how the lack. Uh, what the lack of embracing diversity, equity, inclusion can mean from a competitive competitiveness standpoint. Huh? And so the exact the example I like to use is the University of Alabama's uh, football team. Mm-hmm. In college football, they have won the most ch- championships by a significant margin. They're always one of the more dominant football teams each year. But in the 1960s, they were also dominant uh, in the early and the mid part of the decade. And they were winning championships, but they were not doing it with integrated teams. Mm-hmm. You had you know, the governor of Alabama, uh, was well-known segregationist, uh, uh, George Wallace. Uh, he, w- he was against integration. And so they couldn't integrate their teams. But then towards the latter half of the 60s, they started losing more. Mm-hmm. And then for one year, then two years, three years, four years. And then all of a sudden they started you know, integrating. They, they became
became more accepting to uh, and blacks could play there. And by the time we got to the 1970s, end of the 70s, they were back to winning championships. And now you look today, you would never imagine that there was ever a race issue <laughs> when you look at Alabama's t- uh, team today. But the lesson of this is like you make things may be going well for you and your investment firm today, but don't wait until you start getting beat to embrace diversity, equity, inclusion, because you may not be able to get that chance that Alabama did to correct, to turn it around. Mm-hmm. You know, having obviously been in this role and experiencing what you're experiencing in your, in your childhood, I would love to hear what challenges do you think still exist for you, but more broadly for society when it comes to equality? I'd say that the, the biggest challenges uh, when it comes to equality is really understanding, really getting beyond the root. It really is that privilege walk exercise, really getting beyond the surface level. Yeah. And we are, and, and part of it is human nature. We, you know, we, we are going to have biases. Right. It's just, are these biases aligned with the universal ways that the world works? Mm. And diversity is a universal principle. And so in order to really address the issues and really live out the true meaning of what diversity is and equality, you have to get down to the root cause. And so there are going to be time pressures. They're going to be, it's going to be work. It's going to be work and you have to be willing to evolve and change your and change your thinking. And so those are things that that behaviorally um, uh, keep us from having a more equal and uh, a society where there is more uh, equity uh, in, in various parts of the world. And a very good point. You know, you're kind of fighting to literally like human nature and behavioral. That yes, it, is- it's really behavioral. And yeah. you got to get down to you know, one thing that I try to do is uh, when is something as simple as someone who is new to our team mm-hmm. and, and they have their there and only and if they mm-hmm. say if they propose something or or offer an idea you know my first reaction is to ask why and, and because they're coming in with a different perspective that you know the group hasn't you know hasn't seen mm-hmm. so instead of saying okay you know the person gives their <laughs> their opinion is then just waiting for them to stop and say okay this is how we do it, you know. Right. And, and in your opinion, really, at, if it's something that's different mm-hmm. from your your thinking, say why, and keep saying why until you get down to the root cause. And that's where, again, that's where you find the connections and the commonalities, and, and you can apply those commonalities to the context of what you're trying to do to get to the optimal solution. Now. Earlier, we were talking about the, some of the advice that you give someone who might be going through the, you know similar upbringing as you, and and you mentioned giving back that when mm-hmm. they have the opportunity, you should give back. And you are there, sir. You, mm-hmm. in addition, mm-hmm. again to your role as managing director at WK Calic Foundation, you also volunteer with various organizations. Obviously, one I mentioned earlier, like Rock the Street, Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about the different organization that you? volunteer um, and contributed your time? And why did you choose those organizations? Well, there are a number of organizations, <laughs> Tanya. Uh, one, SEO, uh, mm-hmm. Sponsor for Educational Opportunity. Uh, that's how I got my first internship. I wouldn't be here uh, without SEO. The Twigo Foundation, I got the Twigo Fellowship and it's been a game changer again for my life uh, and my career and wouldn't be here without those two organizations in particular. Uh, you mentioned Rock the Street, Wall Street. And Rock the Street, Wall Street, it's, you know, financial 
and investment literacy program designed to spark the interest of a diverse population of high mm-hmm. school girls to go into careers of finance. And what really attracted me to join that board is that you know I have a nine-year-old daughter and she sits at the intersection of race and gender. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what career she's going to go into, but whatever career she goes into, I will want people who are in a similar seat as I am to open up doors for her so that she would have a level playing field and she wouldn't be at a disadvantage or being only just because of her race and gender. So there, there's this uh, on the second floor of the Kellogg Foundation. Uh, we have the boardroom and where most of the meetings are held. And before you get to the boardroom, though, you see the pictures of all the prior board members at the Kellogg Foundation. And it's like you're going through history because Kellogg Foundation started in 1930. Wow. And so in the 30s, you know, you have you know, pictures of white men, mm-hmm. 40 white men, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, more white, all white men. And then you get past 1980 and you see the first woman. Mm. And then you get close to 1990 and you see a picture of the first person of color. And then past, once you get past 90s, you see the diversity of those pictures change. And then you walk up to the boardroom and you see this big, grand, beautiful picture of the current board with diversity across race, ethnicity, gender. It's it's a beautiful picture. And so what I am reason why I sit on boards uh, like Walker Street, Wall Street is I want my daughter to be able to go into an organization and look at a picture like the one that's outside the boardroom of the Kellogg Foundation and be able to see herself and be able to see her brother right next to her. Wow, that is amazing and inspirational and speaks so much volume. Who would have known that a simple picture, you know, that representation really are impactful for our, the younger Very generation. Very impactful. Nar- narrative change is a big mm-hmm. part of, of why I do this. So. Well, it's clear to anyone listening to this, Reggie, that you obviously not only just talk the talk, but walk the walk, given the journey you have shared with us, but also how you give back to the community. Mm-hmm. So obviously, with much success in your current career, um, mm-hmm. having managed, a, a, is it a million dollar or billion dollar portfolio? Yeah, multi-billion. <laughs> multi-billion yes. portfolio at WK Kellogg and your volunteer and board seats. Years from now, when you look back, what is the one thing you'll want people to remember you by? I would want people to remember me as someone who leveraged the power of diversity to have a transformative, compounding, and multi-generational impact on the lives of others. It, this could come in, this can show up in different ways. From an investment perspective, it could be from the higher excess returns that come from leveraging diversity. You know, from a behavioral perspective, you know, it could come from my actions to promote diversity and opportunity for those uh, who are underrepresented. From a mindset perspective, I-, I want to be remembered as someone who did not settle for lowered expectations because, based off my experience, often when diversity initiatives are pursued, there's this thought in the back of people's mind that you're settling for less than. But based off my life experiences, that is the opposite. The opposite is true. When you embrace diverse perspectives, you read the other chapters in the book of life. And when you do that, you are raising the expectations of what is possible. Well, that, that's amazing. And I'm sh- you're on your on your way and your path and what you share. It's truly inspiring. And and I think, it, like I said earlier, it this will resonate to, with so many people. Well, sir, I know 
you're extremely busy and you've got to get back to all of the different projects that you do. But before I let you go, mm-hmm. I would love to hear who inspires you and why. Uh, well, my faith is very important to me, but because I, I really believe in leveraging the power of diversity, it's hard for me to name just one person. <laughs> so I'll, I'll name a couple. Uh, uh, from an investment perspective, uh, Warren Buffett stands mm-hmm. out and yeah. how Warren Buffett involved, evolved his uh, investment philosophy over his career to great success is is inspiring. He's a known as, as a voracious reader, and so he's yeah, definitely I a heard person. That. He, he's a, definitely a person who reads a lot of other chapters in the Book of Life. Uh, <laughs> but what stands out in particular is Warren Buffett's openness to incorporating Charlie Munger's investment philosophies into his own. Him doing this gave him that Carl Lewis boost to run away from the competition for the rest of his his career. From a sports perspective, I would say that it would be the outside thinking of Bill Walsh, who was a Hall of Fame, three-time Super Bowl champion, head football coach for the San Francisco 49ers. He's known as the he's the greatest, most offensive, innovative, offensive mind in pro football history. However, his innovative thinking was born out of a dire situation earlier in his career when he was assist, an assistant coach leading the offense for another team. There were so many players, so many injuries to the players on the offense that he was forced to come up with innovative ways to score points. In a football context, Bill Walsh was in a situation where he was not born on third. Oh, and he had that. to learn all the different ways to get to third base due to his situation. This resulted in innovation that lapped the competition because he had diverse only experiences in figuring out how to get to third base that the other coaches who were born on third base could not replicate. When I was growing up watching football in the 80s, there was always something that seemed different about Bill Walsh's teams. But then he actually gave us the gift of just giving us all of his only experience thinking when he put it into the book called The Score Takes Care of Itself. And after reading this book, I developed a true appreciation for his approach and try modeling it in my life uh, as well by focusing on having the right mindset, the right behaviors, and then just letting the score take care of itself. Love it. What great people. And you know, I've heard many different kind, uh, different answers. And I got to say my favorite is faith. I know it's not a person, but yes. it, it mm-hmm. does place such a yep. big influence. So mm-hmm. I like that answer. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, Reggie, I, I want to thank you so much for your time and really just sharing again, your amazing and inspiring story. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I could probably speak for many who's listening in that there's a lot to digest here and a lot to take away, but it is so inspiring and gives me so much hope that younger generation will have an even bigger opportunity for them to break through whatever challenges they're facing. So I want to say thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Tanya, for having me. Thank you for listening to the penultimate episode of this season's CFA Society San Francisco podcast. We hope you enjoyed the engaging discussion. We will be taking a brief hiatus in June and July and we'll be coming back with new featured guests in August. Find new episodes and catch up on previous ones featured every fourth Tuesday in our weekly newsletters, our website, and through the CFA Society San Francisco podcast channel, available through most major podcast apps.